0: Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, thank you for waiting, sticking around despite the rooms grew up. And also, I want to thank you guys for um, rescheduling the thing. I was sick last week, and so you're very patient. Okay, so this talk is called Does God Exist? I hope you won't be disappointed if I say that that's a question that can't be settled adequately uh, in a short talk. I won't even try, really. What I'll do instead is less ambitious, but I hope helpful nonetheless. I'll explore the possibilities and limits for using philosophy to learn about God's existence. Now, since this is organized by the Thomistic Institute, um, yeah, I'm going to be presenting things in a way that does jive with St. Thomas's approach. But I won't be doing that because I was uh, um, invited by the Thomistic Institute. I'll do it because I think it makes good sense. So here's the order that I will be presenting things in. First, I'll give a brief sense of what philosophy this is the order on the board, okay? First, I'll give a brief sense of what philosophy is in the first place. Second, I'll give brief discussions of reasons for believing in God other than as a result of philosophical argumentation. Third, I'll discuss the idea of believing in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation. Fourth, I'll consider the following question. If we have used philosophy to provide philosophical reasons for believing in God, what comes next, philosophically speaking? Fifth, I'll look briefly at objections to God's existence. Sixth, I'll point out the limitations of philosophy when it comes to God. I'm going to switch to standing here. So here's a quick account of what philosophy is. It's the use of reason unaided by divine revelation to investigate the most foundational questions. Okay, So it's the use of reason unaided by divine revelation to investigate the most foundational questions. In saying unaided by divine revelation, I mean that philosophy doesn't rely on the Bible or any other revelation from God, but instead just tries to figure things out by human reason alone. What I mean by saying the most foundational questions can be explained as follows. If I ask you what the past tense of jump is, you will tell me that it's jumped. If I ask you why it's jumped and not jump, right? It could have been jump, right? We say run, ran. So why not jump, jump? So if I ask you that, you will tell me something about the two types of verbs in English strong and weak verbs. If I ask you what a verb is, you will say something about action or something. If I ask you what words are, you will say something about sounds that express thoughts or something. Now, the relevant point here is that my questions keep getting at more and more basic and foundational issues. They keep getting deeper and deeper. So the, more, the deeper and more foundational a question is, the more quote unquote philosophical it is. There's probably no precise line between the questions that are philosophical and the questions that are not. But if you get as far as asking whether God exists, you're clearly in philosophy territory. So the question is whether we can know that God exists and whether we can know it solely on the basis of natural human reasoning power. Now what I want to focus on in this talk is how we might come to believe in God on the basis of philosophical argumentation, philosophical reasoning. But partly for the sake of completeness, and partly because it's good to have a contrast, I want now to indicate some of the ways that we might come to believe in God other than by philosophical argumentation the fact that they aren't the same as philosophical argumentation doesn't automatically make them bad, of course. They have their strengths and their weaknesses. But I'm not going to say a whole lot about that here. One way we might come to believe in God non-philosophically would be by accepting God's existence on human authority. The authority of our parents, for example or on the basis of the fact that nearly all human beings have believed in God, in some sense, over the course of history. Relying on the authority of others is not always wrong. For one thing, sometimes there's just no alternative. But from the philosophical standpoint, it's a rather weak kind of support. Another way we might come to believe in God another non-philosophical way, I mean, would be on the basis of experience of God. Somehow, in some way, let's say, I've had an encounter with God and thereby come to know that God exists and even perhaps something of what God is like. The question of whether we can experience God is a very complicated one. If God is what Christians say, then we can't experience God by our natural powers, because God totally transcends our powers. Think of ultraviolet radiation, which falls outside what human vision can see. Or think of the Earth's magnetic field, which sea turtles can sense, but which we cannot. Well, God is outside of what we can experience but in a much more radical way. So if people can experience God, it's probably only because God himself intervened to make that possible. We can't just spot God. We have to make he has to make his presence available to us. Now, whether this can happen and what to think about it when it does happen These are important questions, but they they fall outside the topic of this lecture. We can reflect philosophically on the possibility of experiencing God. That's what we're doing this very second. And we can reflect on what such experiences might mean, but that would all be reflection on the basis of something that happened supernaturally And therefore, it's not really philosophy in the sense that I outlined earlier. A third way we might come to believe in God would be through divine faith. By this, I mean accepting something on God's own authority. God reveals it, and therefore we accept it. And we are moved to do so by God's own operation on our mind and will. God teaches us something, and he also moves us to accept his teaching on his say-so, rather than because we can conclusively see it for ourselves. Faith, in this sense, is the starting point for the science of theology, which is standardly defined as faith-seeking understanding. We accept things on faith, and then we go on to reflect on them in the hope of understanding them better. The idea that there could be faith in this sense is far from crazy, in my opinion. And if there is faith in this sense, then obviously it would be a great thing to have it. What more reliable starting point could there be than revelation from God? But I'm not going to say much more about that in this talk, because accepting things on divine faith is not a philosophical method of inquiry. Now, finally, I want to address the question of believing in God's existence on the basis of philosophical argument. So this is section three. Can we come to believe in God without relying on divine revelation or any other authority, and without having had any spiritual or mystical experiences, but simply on the basis of philosophical reasoning? One approach would be to start with a definition or conception of God and then come to the realization that God is just the sort of thing that has to exist. That it's self-contradictory to suppose that God doesn't exist. Let me put the argument in a very crude form like this. If the word God means a perfect being, then obviously God must exist. Because if he didn't exist, then he wouldn't be perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, then he wouldn't be God. Now this is not a very sophisticated version of the argument. Better versions of this kind of argument are available. But Thomas Aquinas thinks that even in The best version, this kind of argument doesn't work. Aquinas' strategy is different. For one thing, he doesn't start from a definition of God at all. Aquinas thinks that we can't really get an adequate definition of God's essence. God is too transcendent, too far above us for that to work. Instead of reasoning from a definition of God to the existence of God, Aquinas reasons from effect to cause. Now, of course, we reason from effect to cause all the time. If your window breaks, you reason that something must have struck your window. For example, a baseball. The window breaking is the effect, and the baseball hitting it is the cause. Well, Aquinas uses roughly this sort of reasoning to arrive at the existence not of baseballs, but of God. He actually offers a number of different arguments in a number of different works. But all, or anyway most of them, fit this general structure of reasoning from effect to cause. Here's an example of that kind of argument. The world exists, so therefore the maker of the world exists, and that's God. So let me say the argument again. The world exists, therefore the maker of the world exists, and that's God. Is this a good argument? No. It's not a good argument. It's a bad argument. But why is it a bad argument? you might say it's a bad argument because we can't reason from effects to causes in the first place. That's a super radical reason for objecting to the argument. Such an argument blocks not only arguments from the world to God, but also arguments from broken windows to baseballs. An objection like this undercuts not just arguments about God, but almost all the reasoning found in science, engineering, and everyday life. I'm not going to get into that kind of radical skepticism here. I'm going to take it for granted that we can reason from effects to causes. If you accept that we can reason from effects to causes, however, that doesn't mean there's no difficulty about arguing for God's existence. There's a special problem that needs to be dealt with. The problem is that when you reason from effect to cause in the ordinary way, you arrive at a conclusion like this. There's a cause. This is the conclusion that you arrive at, right? There's a cause, and it's the sort of cause that could produce the effect we started from. So for example, if something breaks your window, you can infer that it had enough kinetic energy to break your window. But you can't infer more than that. And you especially can't infer that what broke your window had infinite power. Perhaps you can see how this applies to arguments for the existence of God. The argument as given earlier went like this, the world exists, Therefore, the world maker exists. Now, in order to make the world a world maker would have to be pretty impressive. It would have to be very intelligent and very powerful. But we're supposed to be arguing for the existence of God. We're supposed to be arguing for the existence of something that is infinitely intelligent and infinitely powerful Because our world is finite, the fact that a world maker made it doesn't prove that the world maker is infinite. But that means that we haven't proved that our world maker is God. What's more, how do we know that the world maker doesn't have a maker of its own? Little kids ask this question all the time, but who made God? In other words, words, if there's a world maker, why isn't there a world maker maker? This question is important because if there is a world maker maker, then the, word make, the world maker, it seems, isn't God. So we've been looking at the argument go that goes, there's a world, therefore there's a world maker, and that's God. And you've probably guessed by now that Aquinas' way of arguing doesn't go like that. Aquinas-style arguments are, indeed, arguments from effect to cause. But they don't say merely that when there's an effect, there must be a cause. They argue that when there are effects and causes, there must ultimately be an ultimate cause, not just a cause but an uncaused cause. That is how you arrive at the existence of God. So how do you argue for an uncaused cause? Roughly, very roughly, you argue like this. Things around us have causes. A, let's say, is caused by B. To put it the other way around, B is the cause of A. Okay. Now, B might itself have a cause, C. If so, then B isn't just a cause of A. It's a cause-cause of A. Should I... I'm going to try to move here and write this. Okay, here we go. So, this is A... And then B is the cause of A that's supposed to be an arrow. And then C is the cause of B. See? Okay. Now, so A, B is a cause of A, but it's a caused cause of A. Because it's caused by C. And of course, C, B's cause, might in turn have its own cause, D. Right? Obviously, I could just keep going backwards like this. And in that case C would itself be a caused cause. Now this pattern can be extended. D might be caused by E and E might be caused by F. But according to this reasoning it can't go on forever. At some point you have to get to an uncaused cause. Now the crux of all of this is the claim that it can't go on forever Why not? Why can't we have an effect that comes from a cause, that comes from a cause backwards forever? The reason is that caused causes depend on their causes. And it's not possible for everything that exists to be dependent. Ultimately, there has to be something independent Without there, there literally wouldn't be anything at all. Let me provide some images to make this more concrete. First, think of light shining from a mirror. Mirrors don't just shine all by themselves. They only reflect light that is shined on them. In short, they need to be illuminated. Now, a mirror can reflect light that comes from another mirror. That happens all the time, actually. But it can't go on like this forever. If it's just mirrors all the way back, you would have nothing but darkness. You need something that doesn't merely reflect light, but that emits it as a source. At some point, you need a light bulb or the sun. You need an unilluminated illuminator. Second, think of a boxcar in motion. Boxcars don't just move. They need to be pulled. A boxcar can, of course, be pulled by another boxcar. That happens all the time. But it can't go on like this forever. It can't be boxcars all the way down the line. At some point, you need a locomotive. You need an unpulled puller. So it's okay for a cause to be dependent, but it's not okay for every cause to be dependent. <coughs> Think of it this way. Suppose we agree that I'm going to buy your computer. I say that I'd like you to hand it over right now and I'll give you five hundred dollars tomorrow. Suspicious, you ask me to show you the five hundred dollars. Well, I say, I don't have it right now, but I'll be borrowing it from my brother. Suspicious, you ask my brother to show you the five hundred dollars. Well, he doesn't have it right now, but he'll be borrowing it from his poker buddy. It's okay, if it goes back like this for five more steps, or even for 500 more steps. But at some point, somebody actually has to have the $500. Not everyone can be borrowing. It's okay to borrow from someone who is himself borrowing. But somewhere down the line, there has to be a lender who isn't himself a borrower. There has to be a source that doesn't itself receive from some prior source. The guy with the $500, I mean the guy who actually has it in his hands, is different from all the other guys. The other guys, even if they are lenders, are also borrowers. But the guy with the money is a non-borrowing lender. He's a creditor who isn't a debtor. He actually owns the money. He's like a light bulb rather than a mirror. He's like a locomotive rather than a boxcar. So the series of backwards causes ends in something that is very different from all all the other things in the series. The series ends with something that's very different from all the other things in the series. Now, we've been exploring analogies that were meant to get you thinking about the difference between caused and uncaused causes, but they are only analogies. Light bulbs, locomotives, and guys with $500 are uncaused in a way, but only relative to other things. Light bulbs are uncaused relative to mirrors. Locomotives are uncaused relative to boxcars. Guys with $500 are uncaused relative to borrowers. But they are themselves caused causes. I mean the locomotive, uh, the light bulb, and the guy with the money. A truly uncaused cause would be far more different from other things. The fact that the argument ends in something so different, so very, very different, is what opens up the possibility that the argument ends with God. The argument ends not just with a cause, and not just with an uncaused cause, relatively speaking, but but with what is absolutely speaking a truly uncaused cause. Aquinas says, and this everybody calls God. just to be clear let me say that I have not given a full-blown version of any of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. At most, I've just gestured at some of them. I've basically given you the structure of some of his arguments along with some reflections on the key insight about dependence. There just isn't time to go into all the details. I mean, we could have like For just one of Aquinas' arguments, we could spend like five lectures. It would be really fun, actually, but we can't do that. (laughs) Not here. So what I've said, I, I hope, does nonetheless give you some sense of the general structure and the strategy that Aquinas uses. Now, I've said that Aquinas ends his arguments by saying, and this all men call God and you might be thinking, that's a little too fast. An uncaused cause is admittedly much more than just a world maker. For example, since it's uncaused, we already have an answer to the question, who made it? Namely, if you ask that question, it shows that you didn't understand, because if it's uncaused, then nothing made it. But still, Maybe we aren't yet in a good position to use the G word. right? Just because we've got an uncaused cause, maybe that doesn't mean we actually have arrived at God. So that leads to the next section of the talk. What comes next? Suppose you have worked on this for a while. Like, you've spent months and years. doing enough reading and thinking and discussing to conclude that some version of a causal argument is sound. It really works. Maybe you have concluded that Aquinas' arguments work in the form in which he gave them to us. Maybe you have concluded that they work in somewhat improved versions. Maybe you have concluded that Aquinas' arguments sadly have massive flaws, but that other arguments do work. Anyway, what next? Before answering that, let me mention that if Aquinas' arguments turned out to be bad arguments, he would not get mad at you for pointing that out. On the contrary, he would thank you. For one thing, he holds that if someone gives a bad argument for God, we shouldn't act as if everything is OK, because at least they're on the right team. We should shoot the argument down, Aquinas says, because we don't, people, we don't want people to think that belief in God is based on this bad reason. For another thing, Aquinas would thank you because you helped him get closer to the truth. And this um, is the really great thing about admitting it when you're in error as soon as you admit it, you aren't in error anymore. It's instantly over. It's the only problem in life, it's the only problem that you can fix simply by noticing that you have a problem. It's just amazing. It makes you wonder why people spend so much energy refusing to admit it when they're wrong. Okay, so suppose somehow we have found a good argument that arrives at the existence of an uncaused cause, an unreceiving source, something like that. What then? What comes next, philosophically speaking? The short answer is you have to keep thinking. Maybe that's good advice in general, although I suppose not always. But it has a special meaning here. If you think that you have proved the existence of God, you still won't have proved everything you might want to prove about God. It's tempting to think things like this. Hooray! There's an uncaused cause of change. God exists. His Son Jesus is my personal Savior. The Catholic Church is here to provide me with the fullness of the means of salvation. But if you think about it, even a little really, all of that stuff goes way, way beyond the idea that there's an uncaused cause, right? OK. So you've got to go slow. Even though Aquinas uses the word God at the end of the arguments, all he means at this point is an uncaused cause. That's all he has proved so far. Now, if you think that Aquinas is actually jumping the gun here by using the word God, then that gives you even more reason to keep thinking. You want to go on to learn more about this extraordinary thing, this uncaused cause. It might turn out that this extraordinary thing is so very extraordinary that you could call it God. Okay. The point is that the proofs prove only so much There's an awful lot that they don't prove. By the time that he's finished giving proofs for God, Aquinas has not explicitly proved that the uncaused cause brought us into existence out of nothing. That hasn't been proved yet. He hasn't proved that the uncaused cause loves us. Some of Aquinas' arguments just the arguments themselves, they leave open the possibility that God doesn't even know that we exist. For all we know at this point, this thing that we're calling God is just a kind of force. Now, of course, Aquinas does think that God has a mind. He does think that God loves us. He does think that God created us and all of that. But he believes that thing those things, he believes those things only because of further reasoning. Each new point requires its own set of philosophical arguments. In fact, it takes Aquinas 50 pages of highly compressed writing. If you've ever read Aquinas, like he squeezes it down like you just can't summarize it. It's as tight as it can be. It takes 50 pages of highly compressed writing in small print to arrive at the conclusion that there's only one God. It's not until, if you like, look at the Summa Theologiae. It's only until question 11 that you find out that there's only one God. So how does Aquinas take all those extra steps? Well, to answer that question, I'd have to go through all those steps. And that would keep us here all night, and in fact, all semester. So let me just make one point, but it's a very important point. To a significant extent, the further reasoning that Aquinas goes through is the unfolding of the idea. It's the unfolding of the idea of God that he arrived at in the initial arguments. What the arguments have in common is that God is where the buck stops. He's not just a cause. He's an uncaused cause. He gives, but what he gives he didn't receive from somewhere else. He didn't receive it from anywhere else because just by his very nature, he always automatically already has it. To put it differently, he's completely perfect. From that insight, Aquinas is able to go on and argue for a lot of things about God. If he's perfect, then he needs to have a mind, for example. So while it's true, as I said earlier, that Aquinas' arguments don't really give us a well-developed idea of a personal god, they do contain the seeds of that idea. And Aquinas gets those seeds to grow by further philosophical reflection. Now I want to say a brief word about objections to God For Aquinas, as for most medieval philosophers and theologians, it's standard operating procedure, not just to state your views and not just to give arguments for your views, but also to state objections to your views and to answer those objections. Just imagine what the world would be like if politicians did this. Yeah, I know, it's impossible to imagine. So Aquinas lists two objections to God's existence. And they are probably the two two best ones, the two most important ones. First, that there's evil in the world and that that's enough to prove that there's no God. Second, that we don't need to believe in God because we already have good enough explanations of everything. In a way, Aquinas' answer to that second objection is already lurking in his arguments in favor of God. Aquinas thinks it's false that we can give ultimate explanations of everything without appealing to a god. Of course, we can give explanations of things without talking about God. We can find causes. But those explanations involve appealing to things that themselves need explanations. When we have done something like that, we have indeed given an explanation, but we haven't given an ultimate explanation. As for the first objection, Aquinas' answer goes well beyond anything contained in his arguments for God's existence. What he says in the particular text that I'm concerned with is short but deep. Someone who thinks that evil is an objection to God, apparently thinks that the only proper way for God to deal, yeah, so someone who thinks that evil is an objection to God, apparently thinks that the only proper way for God to deal with evil would be for God to destroy it. But Aquinas thinks there's an alternative God can allow evil to exist and then draw a greater good out of it. There's a lot packed into that thought. But at the very least, it shows that the topic of God and evil is more complicated than it might initially appear to be. It is indeed a mysterious idea that God might allow evil rather than just snuff it out. But it seems far too quick to say that the existence of evil just flat out disproves God's existence. All right, section six. We're getting near the end. So hang in there. Aquinas' way of doing philosophy can get you some pretty substantial results. It can get you to the idea that God is good that he's an immaterial spirit, that he's all-powerful, that he knows everything, that he created everything, that he guides everything, and so on. It might even get you to the idea that you should love and reverence God and pray to him. However, it has to be admitted that it would still be a pretty cold and abstract and philosophical sort of religion. No burning bush, no crossing of the Red Sea, no return from captivity in Babylon, no Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, no sending of the apostles to the whole world. So this merely philosophical approach won't get you to anything that most people would call religion. It's a philosophical religion, but it's not You know, a religion, religion. For Aquinas, that requires getting beyond philosophy by accepting God's revelation. Revelation goes beyond human reason. It tells us things we could never prove on our own, and it gives us utter confidence about things that would otherwise just be based on our own potentially flawed philosophical reasoning. Now, it might be objected that relying on revelation is acting like a weakling. Shouldn't we do things under our own power? To that, I think Aquinas would give two answers. First, if God really is God, then he's so different from us and so far above us that it's ludicrous to think that we could have a good understanding of him just on the basis of our own power. Second, humans are weak and flawed. And if Aquinas says so, that counts for something, because very few humans have ever been as smart and hard working as Tom's Aquinas. So maybe humans are pretty limited, in which case it would make sense for them to rely on divine help if they can get it. In any case, whether you accept the possibility of divine help or not, it's worthwhile being aware not only of the strengths of philosophical reasoning, but also of their limitation. Anything else would be unphilosophical. Okay, let me conclude with just a few concluding remarks. As you can tell from what's been said, Aquinas thinks that philosophical reason has a lot of power to help us learn something about the existence and nature of God. At the same time, he also thinks that philosophical reason has serious limits. Some of those limits are practical. Philosophy takes a lot of time. It's easy to make mistakes. Some of those limits are limits in principle. God so transcends the human mind that many important truths about God simply cannot be discovered by humans without divine revelation, period it's important to see both the power and the limits of philosophical reason. If all we see are the limits, then we'll think that there can't really be any dialogue between Christian believers and non-believers. Religion to us would be exclusively based on faith, and those who aren't believers would seem to have no access to God in any way unless they first accepted revelation. There's another problem if philosophy has nothing to say about God. Of course, divine revelation is adequate, but it might not always be adequate for us. Revelation is hard to understand. Sometimes the Bible makes you think that God is an immaterial spirit, and then you turn the page and you read something about God's holy arm, not to mention his footstool Philosophical reason can help us come up with intellectually solid and rigorous interpretations of scripture, which sometimes uses a lot of figurative and metaphorical language. Again, the point isn't that the Bible needs philosophy, but that philosophy helps us understand the Bible. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, said once that it wasn't coincidence, but divine providence. That the son of god became incarnate at a time and place when philosophy had made enough progress that people could have a solid understanding of what had happened okay so having praised philosophy both for its ability to give us access to god without revelation and for its ability to help us understand revelation let me now end with a final reminder that it has its limits saint augustine Compare the philosopher without faith to a traveler who is on the top of a hill and who can, from there, catch a glimpse of where he needs to go, but he can't figure out how to get there. Only through revelation as God can we actually find the right path. So I think Aquinas would say this. Philosophy is important, but it's not enough to tell you everything you need to know. And especially not the most important things you need to know. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org/slash/donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.